By way of introduction this morning, we're still in this sermon series on Ecclesiastes. Um, we'll be doing it the rest of this month and then probably able to be moving to a different in a different direction after that. But uh, by way of introduction, I want to begin this morning by talking just a little bit about our love-hate feelings relationship that we have with mysteries. People love mysteries. TV shows, they often explore the unexplained. Films guide us through different unexpected twists and turns. Some of those sometimes plot twists that surprise us uh, with surprising endings sometimes. And uh, who did it novels? Uh, come on. Show your age who done it. Show your age. How many used to enjoy watching What's My Line? Yeah, I see some hands. Some of you are saying, what in the world are you talking about? Do you not even remember the show What's My Line, Cindy? Is that... All right. Well, it was a panel of... Uh, mostly actors and actresses and somebody would come out and you had to guess what their job was and they were usually bizarre twists, turns, unusual things. We love mysteries. And, uh, you know, even the mysteries of, of the universe attract our curiosity. Not just that of the scientists. While science has taken great strides in answering many questions, each discovery seems to create even more, even a new list of, of challenging questions that force us to re-examine our conclusions, re-examine our theories. When I was talking to the, the young people at camp this week, I said four times in a row, I think they should have heard it by the last time. When you are taught the theory of evolution the theory did you notice that I said theory the theory of evolution and I kept stressing that because it is a theory it is not fact uh, in fact there are some really really good reasons why uh, well let me go here Charles Darwin himself said in his own words he said, if the single cell turns out to be more complex than what I can observe it to be under a rather crude, simple microscope, he said, it throws out my whole theory of evolution. And guess what? We proved that that single cell is way more complex. Uh, going into the RNA and the DNA and all of the information that's contained therein. Uh, yet, the, the innate curiosity that we have about the inner workings of things. Again, how many of you took apart something and had no idea how you were going to put it back together, but just took it apart because you wanted to see how it worked? And unfortunately, sometimes that even involved living things. Uh, I, I remember a little boy coming crying because... His little animal uh, wasn't moving, wasn't breathing, wasn't functioning. And 
it, I just opened it up to see how it worked. Uh, but now it, it didn't work anymore. You know, our curiosity keeps us trekking on through both the micro and the macro cosms of God's creation. And in many ways, it's a search of that place where no one else has gone before. Remember that line from the, from the movies? People love mysteries. At least some kinds of mysteries. Other mysteries, people hate. Nagging questions about the perplexities of life that can sometimes be very excruciating. Why? Why did my nephew's body reject that heart after 27 years? Why isn't this marriage or even marriage counseling working? Why did my spouse or why did my child die so young? And and don't come to me with that ludicrous, bizarre, non-biblical answer, God just needed another angel. That is so far from what the Bible teaches, it's almost heresy outright. Why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? You see, these questions represent some of the mysteries of life that can cause us to question the very goodness and the very sovereignty of God. Paul noticed that there was something more though. Notice what he wrote in Romans 11.33. It has to do with mystery. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Although He was well educated, probably one of the most educated men of His day, a student under Gamaliel, widely traveled, the Apostle Paul didn't hesitate to acknowledge and exalt the mystery of God's knowledge and wisdom. And this verse and the verses surrounding it form a doxology of praise and adoration thought by many to have been written by Paul himself. Romans, like most of Paul's letters, can be divided into theory and practice sessions, sections. The theology by, behind what he is going to say uh, in the closing chapters is all there in the first 11 chapters. What Autumn read for us, those first two verses of Romans 12, begin the practical application. Because of what I've said in chapters 1 to 11, therefore, that's what that first therefore is about. Therefore, because of what I have written to you in chapters 1 to 11. So don't come to me and say, I don't understand Romans 12, 1 and 2, and not be ready for me to say, well, have you studied and read chapters 1 to 11? We can't take verses out of context and understand what the Bible means. Romans 1-11 provides the groundwork, the foundation. 
And so it is in these verses, verses 33 to 36, that Paul is providing a transition, an appropriate finale or a summary of the theological portion and an effective transition into the more instructional, practical application that comes to us in chapters 12 to 16. And I believe the the power of the passage is felt more in hearing it read. Let me start again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has been given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him... And through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Do you hear it? Paul's overwhelmed. He's in wonder. He's in awe. How fathomless, he says, is the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's a mystery. Who but God? could have conceived a plan that would turn disobedience into an occasion for mercy and in the process reach out universally to all who would believe. So as we move into our text for today, it's probably best for us to start our study of Ecclesiastes uh, 10-17 to by, by doing what some readers of mystery novels do. Again, how many of you do it? Flip to the end of the book to see how it's going to end. You just can't stand the suspense. And you know, verses 16 to 17 give us a twofold outlook on divine mysteries. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, How neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that men cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he'll not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Although this conclusion doesn't answer all of our questions, I think it does put our questions into a proper perspective. The way Solomon is closing these verses that we're about to look at is by saying that God's mysteries defy human explanation. No matter how hard we try in our own human strength, even if we were to stay up night and day searching, we couldn't explain the infinite workings of God. I love, I love Job. How many of you love Job? You love Job? It's good, beautiful. One of the best stories ever written. Three friends come from far away to help comfort Job. And they get there and they sit for seven days and seven nights in silence. And then they open their mouths. And later in the book, Job says, Oh, that you were back like you were those first days when you got here. 
You were more comfort when you sat with me in silence. We do a whole lot of harm when we open our mouths trying to explain to somebody what God is doing and why He's doing it. Sometimes the best thing we can do is go and be there. Just sit there in silence. Be there. And secondly, Solomon shares that God's mysteries go beyond the human intellect and wisdom. Not only can we not explain what God is doing, we actually lack the intellect and wisdom to even grasp it. If God wants us to know even part of His infinite mind, the Bible says He has to reveal it to us by means of His Spirit, who expresses that revelation to us in Scripture, by the way. So let's do a little unpacking. Some of the mystery that leads up to this point. First of all, the mystery of unfair accomplishments. Verses 9 to 13. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt. And then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. (coughs) Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Verse 9 is a transitional sentence, bringing us from what Solomon had said about what we should be doing to what Solomon is saying in verse 10, that evil deeds of men are often forgotten, resulting in a repetition of the same evils from generation to generation. There are three variations of the repeating history theme of which I'm familiar. Statements often appearing in debates as to who should be attributed with the phrase. For instance, the Irish statesman Edmund Burke is often misquoted as having said, those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. That's not really what he said, but that's how it gets repeated. The Spanish philosopher George Santayana, he's credited with the aphorism, uh, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The most common, though, is British statesman Winston Churchill. It was Churchill who said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And we could easily point to the extreme examples of people like Hitler or Stalin whose heinous atrocities 
unfortunately, are often repeated to varying degrees in our day. And yet, their evil deeds have been forgotten by many, or perhaps because of the rewriting of history that many want to do, never even learned. On a smaller scale, most of us have been to the funeral of a person who was mean-spirited and and unloving in life, but whose memorial service and obituary portrayed that person as a saintly parent and loving spouse. And you're sitting there at the funeral wondering, did this guy understand who who this is in the casket? Why is it that people gloss over wickedness and sometimes even forget it? And to make matters worse, Solomon points out in verses 11 and 12 that wicked people often escape punishment from the legal system only to live long and prosperous lives. This he alludes to as a mystery that's difficult to accept and even harder to explain. I hope you understand that failing to punish sin in society leads to a downward spiral uh, as criminals intensify and multiply their evil with less and less fear of being captured and brought to justice. Think with me for a second. I shared this with the kids this week. Adam and Eve in the garden. God created Adam and He created Eve. Could He have created a second Adam if He needed to? Absolutely. Could He have created a second Eve if He needed to? Absolutely. So when Eve took that bite, knowing that it was going to bring about death, if she would have instantly dropped dead, you think Adam would have wanted to taste Now, he said, now, you, you can keep that away from me. But here's the problem. The punishment gets removed too far from the crimes. Mom and Dad, years ago, were in the Bahamas. And they noticed that the police officers weren't even wearing weapons. And so Dad said to one of the officers, he said, my son is a police officer in Louisville, Kentucky. Man, they wear a weapon everywhere they go, 24-7, 365. His weapon's never far from him. And yet I notice you're not even wearing a weapon when you're working. And the officer looked at him and he said, first of all, where would they go? It's an island. Secondly, if if you at that time at least if you assaulted a police officer on that island at that time, as soon as you were caught, you had your trial, your judgment, and most of the time, your execution, which was public. It was a big deterrent to harming a police officer. But we have, we have said, oh, let's pat their hands. And so what have you experienced as you've read the news? 
that some of those who have been out on probation and parole and, and all of the other stuff are right back out there hurting people again, many of them before their trial even comes up. Solomon understood that the punishment has to come quickly after the crime. And so he says here uh, that in verses 12 to 13, that's exactly what was going on in his day. We know it's going on in ours. But we haven't learned the lesson, have we? And Solomon was particularly frustrated because he knew that things should be better. And don't we as well? Secondly, there's the mystery of unfair outcomes. Verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. In the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13, Paul points out how God established human government to exercise judge justice. It's understandable that governments can become corrupt and fail to carry out their God-given duties. However, Solomon described another mystery in which it appears that God Himself allowed the righteous to suffer while the wicked prospered. We see this all too often. Why are godly missionaries martyred while brutal murderers keep their freedom? Why does an irresponsible drunk driver walk away from an accident often without a scratch and often without any legal recourse while a Christian family that he hits dies in the collision? Why must a hard-working, godly woman barely scrape enough money together to provide for her children's necessities while the deadbeat father isn't taking his responsibility and doing what he needs to be doing and again, often is not even punished for his failure to do what the courts has told him to do. And you see, for those of us who believe in an all-good and all-sovereign God, these questions raise issues that, that we're unable to fully understand. Philip Yancey writes in one of his books about probably the most common curse word in the English language in which God's name is taken in vain followed by another word of judgment. Here's what he writes. People say it not only in the face of great tragedy, but also when their cars won't start, when a favored sports team loses, when it rains on their picket picnic. That oath renders an instinctive judgment that life ought to be fair and that God should somehow do a better job of running His world. Have you ever questioned either God's goodness or His power or control, His sovereignty over all things? 
after observing a good person suffer unjustly? Have you ever been the victim of what you considered injustice? And yet it seemed like God God did nothing? That's what Solomon is pointing to. The mystery of unfair outcomes. Thirdly then, he talks about the mystery of untimely pleasures. Verse 15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. The third mystery goes beyond the crook who escaped punishment and beyond the saint who is targeted for calamity. In verse 15 of chapter 8, Solomon is describing his response to the mysterious injustice and unfairness of the world. And what he is saying is, so I commended pleasure. That's what that word joy means. You see, in reaction to the mysteries of injustice, Solomon really isn't encouraging us to indulge in a carnal, hedonistic lifestyle. And that's the way this verse has often been interpreted. Well, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. That's not what Solomon's saying. That's another example of a verse taken out of context and misapplied, and therefore God's Word treated improperly. No. What he is advising is that in the tough times of life, we need to work hard to enjoy life and to trust God, even in the face of those unsolved mysteries. Such a response of pleasure, of joy and contentment in the midst of raw futility, sometimes that's the greatest mystery of all that will attract the attention of your friends and neighbors and family. I know it did in our own family back when my grandmother died, 1976. Because a portion of our family were just wailing and grieving and Because they had no hope. My mom, our side of the family, we were grieved, we were sad. But we knew that we would see my grandmother again. A different perspective. That's what Solomon is commending. You see, the natural response would be to become resentful, pessimistic, increasingly wicked in reaction to the unjust triumphs and unfair consequences. And that's often the case with people who have endured extreme injustice. I know of one man who I believe from the stories I've heard was dealt with unjustly. And God bless him. He did not turn against God, but turned to God. So what what is it that we need to admit in conclusion? You see, 
All of us struggle with unsolved mysteries of life from time to time. The suffering of the righteous, the triumph of the wicked, the indiscriminate catastrophes of nature, the unavoidable calamities of life that sometimes appear to us as sure signs that either God has completely lost control of the universe or He just doesn't care. But there's a better response to these mysteries than doubt and despair. We hate to be out of control. We want to feel that we're on top of life. Or at least that we're not being dragged underneath it. We want mysteries to be solved. And all the details of life to make sense. However, in order to cope with the distressing and the disturbing mysteries that engulf us, we have to let go of our hopeless quest for answers. The perspective granted by God does not solve the mysteries of life, but it gives us confidence that God is still good and He's still sovereign, that He has His own answers and purposes. And the proper perspective on mysteries allow us to practice our trust and hope regardless of whether or not the answer is ever revealed. So what do we have to admit? I think it would be good to start by admitting that we're only human. We're only human. God is God and we are not. It's a simple, almost cliche truth. But one that humans have been forgetting ever since the temptation by Satan in the Garden of Eden. There are just some things we can't discover and could never comprehend no matter how much information God poured into our comparatively tiny minds. And secondly, I think we need to admit that we don't understand why. And we may never learn why while we're on this earth. When relating to people who are hurting, people who are questioning God, people who are struggling with injustice and unfair consequences of life, we need to resist to try to bandage them up with little quotes or quips or cliches or proof texts, even like Romans 8.28. All things work to the good for those. We better read that one in context too. Though these responses sometimes may be true, we often toss them out as answers when the reality is sometimes there are no answers. And we need to be comfortable with acknowledging without shame, without guilt, our own ignorance. One of the things that I think I have learned in life is the ability to say, I don't know. I don't know. But I'll help you search for an answer. Let's go to God's Word, see what we can find that applies. Jerry Bridges wrote this, and I like it. We are unwilling to live without rational reasons for what is happening to us or those we love. We are almost insatiable in our quest for the why of the adversity that has come upon us. But this is futile as well as an untrusting task. 
God's ways being the ways of infinite wisdom simply cannot be comprehended by our infinite minds. Thirdly and lastly, we need to admit that there are some things we cannot change no matter how hard we try because we're not God. And because we're not God, we can't always be Mr. or Mrs. Fix-It. And that's a hard one for us as dads, isn't it, Rich? We want to fix it. When we see our child suffering or crying, whether it's from physical pain or emotional pain, we want to fix it. But sometimes things just can't be fixed. Only God can change them. Only God can solve the mysteries of life in His own time and according to His own plan. And in the meantime, we need to choose to fear Him, to live in awe, to enjoy His good gifts amidst the mysteries of injustice and evil. Let's pray.